Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. I'm Chris Morgan, a 3L at the Gonzaga University School of Law and governor of the Law Student Division's 12th Circuit. And I'm Sandy Gallant-Jones, a 2L at the Northern Illinois College of Law and governor of the Law Student Division's 7th Circuit. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Law Student Podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Joining us today from Spokane, Washington, is attorney Mark Vovos. Mark has practiced law in the state of Washington and throughout the Northwest for 49 years. He's one of only a handful of lawyers certified in the state of Washington to try death penalty cases at the trial level. Mark tried his first capital case back in 1969 and currently serves on the executive board of the Washington State Bar Association's Section on Criminal Law. Hey, Mark, thank you for joining us today to talk a little bit about what you do and the challenges associated with trying death penalty cases. Well, thank you. Mark, first off, tell us a little bit about your practice and what inspired you to get into law in the first place. Well, my practice is primarily criminal defense in federal courts, but I also do state court defense of citizens here in Spokane. Uh, How I got involved in criminal law is probably a a long story, but as a young lawyer, I was uh, practicing with another lawyer, and the cases that I uh, were given or assigned were were criminal cases. And back then, in 1968, in the state of Washington, if there was a charge of murder, this is pre-Furman versus Georgia, uh, a jury made the decision if somebody was convicted of murder, whether it was felony murder or intentional murder, what the penalty would be. In other words, if they were found guilty of first-degree murder, the jury would make a determination whether the sentence would be life in prison or death. Death back then in 69 was uh, by hanging in the state of Washington. And life had a different meaning than it has today. It wasn't necessarily life without parole, but it was a definition based on our statutes in the state of Washington. So that's how I got involved. And I tried a number of cases uh, pre-Furman and then after Furman and I guess off and on uh, up until this year. So that's the basic answer to your question, how I got involved. I just got involved in it and was given cases and I just sort of developed uh, pre-Furman and post-Furman. Great. So on the subject of capital punishment and being certified to try death penalty cases at the trial level, how does a person become certified to try death penalty cases as there's so few uh, individuals who are in the state of Washington? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, Chris. And it wasn't until recently that there was any, any list of lawyers who were going to try death penalty cases either at the trial level or in post-conviction relief or on appeals. That didn't start in the state of Washington until the year 2000, when the Supreme Court decided that based on the problems with death penalty cases, the quality of representation, and all the other inherent problems with asking for the death penalty, that there should be a committee or a list. And so the Supreme Court our Supreme Court of the state of Washington formulated rules, 
which is now the Superior Court Special Proceedings Rule. Special Proceedings means you're going to ask for death, uh, that the committee or that the list uh, was started. And in that regard, the Supreme Court picked uh, a number of lawyers uh, and judges, uh, defense attorneys uh, from the public defenders, from the private sector, and judges from around the state uh, to form a committee. And we pretty much started, I was initially on the committee when it started in 2000, and we uh, developed a questionnaire and a format. And uh, that's the basis. If people want to be appointed, they have to uh, complete a questionnaire. They can obtain that from the Supreme Court of Washington. And they answer the questions, and the committee uh, reviews their application. Uh, the basis for somebody becoming an attorney who can handle either post-conviction releases or appeals uh, is the panel looks at because the lawyer has to have demonstrated a proficiency and a commitment to quality representation, which is appropriate in a capital case. That's something that's evaluated by the Supreme Court and, and the committee. You have to have at least five years experience in the practice of criminal law and be familiar with the utilization of expert witnesses and evidence. That's stated in the rule in the special superior court special proceedings rules. And you can't be serving in any other active uh, case involving the death penalty. And there's two attorneys that are appointed. One counsel has to be on a list. The other one doesn't. So that's that's basically how, how you do it. Uh, Mary Tracy of the Washington Supreme Court has the questionnaire, and the lawyer would call her if they have the requisite experience, which has uh, been changed here in the last couple of years. It's just uh, five years' experience. But it does require a, an exhaustive questionnaire answers, and you have to demonstrate uh, your knowledge of uh, capital cases, and the committee looks at briefs and checks your references and talks to judges and lawyers that you've tried cases with. So that's, in a nutshell, how you go about getting on the, uh, on the list. And the list is segregated with trial counsel, appellate counsel, and uh, post-conviction relief counsel. And I know that generally regarding the criminal procedure rules for the state of Washington, but I'm just interested in, in generally, what do you think about implementing that type of certification or broadening out that type of certification to cover non-capital type offenses? Well, I think certification would be good. I think that's a good idea. I think uh, a lot of attorneys uh, perhaps don't have all the experience that's necessary, and I think that the more uh, certification we have and being able to demonstrate that you're knowledgeable of the criminal law is, uh, is a good thing. Okay, so let's take a step back and look at the preparation that goes into, in particular, death penalty cases and what goes into preparing for a capital murder trial. Well, uh, short answer, a lot of things. Uh, once an attorney is appointed or once it's determined uh, that the case potentially can involve uh, the aggravating circumstances of an aggravated murder, and there's a ton of them. I mean, uh, it can be a burglary in the first degree or uh, more than one victim or a police officer. There, there's all sorts of aggravating factors that are set forth. Counsel should be appointed immediately uh, by the uh, local superior court 
you know, who has the list of attorneys, at least one attorney initially, and meeting with the client and making sure that they're advised of what's going on. The prosecuting attorney has a time period within which to make a determination whether they're going to ask for the death penalty or not. So it's usually a 30-day period. That can be extended. And what happens in that period is that our practice in Washington is that the defense begins immediately uh, to prepare a mitigation package or reasons and mitigation as to why the prosecutor should not seek the death penalty in the first instance, even though it may be a qualifying aggravated first-degree murder under our statute. And that includes the appointment of experts now in the state of Washington and throughout the country. There are what they call mitigation uh, investigators that go out and investigate the history, background, and circumstances of a defendant that is charged with aggravated murder that may involve a capital trial if the prosecutor seeks a death. So family members are reviewed, school records, criminal history records, uh, mental health records. Find out as much as you can about the client that may be a mitigating factor or a reason for the prosecuting attorney not to elect to file the charge. So having said that, that can go on for uh, a period of time, not necessarily uh, uh, within the 30 days, but it can go on for four months to give the defense the opportunity to present some mitigating evidence. And most prosecutors are interested in that and would like to receive it. Of course, that's subject to privilege and how much you want to present, but that's where it starts. If the prosecutor in any event decides to file uh, the charge of aggravated murder and ask for the death penalty, that is a specific notice that they will be uh, seeking death, which is a jury question. And then that implicates uh, uh, the real uh, scope of representation because you're not only investigating the facts of the case as to what led up to the aggravating factors that's and and you're also investigating mitigation or continuing to investigate uh, mitigation and the evidence in the case and that takes a that takes a while the rules in our experience in the state of Washington, if you're involved in a, in a case where there's a death penalty, you're probably not going to have anything else that you're going to be doing at that time as far as the practice. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. You know, turning to the day of trial itself, how, if at all, does the jury selection process differ in death penalty cases as opposed to less serious cases? Are you allowed, you know, a, a more extensive use of jury questionnaires? You know, might a judge limit or expand the process of voir dire, just given the stakes of the case? Well, it's a good question, and it's not a short answer. On the day of the trial, when you show up, there's been a lot of uh, preparation and work done as far as selection of the jury. There's an initial pool of jurors in a capital case that may be 500 or maybe 1,000 people. It depends on where you're at. But the first thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be the preparation of a jury questionnaire months or at least some months before a trial to try to work out the types of questions that the parties may want to ask or may be important and relevant to the jurors. But basically, you're talking about is the juror qualified? Is there any disabilities or problems with the jurors in a case like this? Because in capital cases, you know, you may be talking about a month or two 
in trial, uh, things like that, time constraints, and other questions, publicity, reading about the case, other issues that may involve the ability of the jurors, if everything else is okay as far as their schedule and uh, any disabilities that they have, that they would be able to serve for that period of time or whether the court would excuse them or not. And then, of course, uh, the big questions, uh, what's your view about the death penalty and when do you think it should be imposed? So those questionnaires go out to jurors and then they come back to the court. Of course, they have to be formulated and we write our own. The prosecutor may have their own and then the judge looks at them. So there's a correlation of all the different advocates and they put together a questionnaire. It goes out, it comes back. Then you have to take a look at that. From that initial questionnaire, you can probably exclude a large number of people, either because of disability or inability to serve or because of conflicts and things like that. So the court tries to limit jurors that may be excused or excusable and and get down the number that they're actually going to ask to come into the courthouse. Then they're going to be looking at the questionnaires. For example, and I just use this as an example, if there are people that have had extensive exposure to publicity, if there's a lot of publicity in the case, and have answered questions that may uh, disqualify them. Those people may be put into a separate group. And then another group would be their feeling about the death penalty. If people express, for example, an answer to how do you feel about the death penalty, that I think anybody who's committed murder, you know, should be put to death. Those people may be disqualified automatically. So there are different pools that come in, but at some point there's going to be a group of people that are going to come in and the lawyers and the judge is going to have a good idea where we're going to start first. And I think that any questions about disability or any questions about issues in the case, like publicity, preconceived notions, opinions, ideas, and things like that, that may be the first area that the lawyers start to question the jurors on. There can be a difference uh, as to whether this is done with a complete veneer panel. In other words, if there's 300 people, you question 300 people at once. That usually doesn't work. So there may be smaller groups, and you try to ferret out individuals that may have potential disqualifying attitudes or beliefs. And then the second issue, just in this example, might be people who have views about the death penalty. And we'd have the questionnaires and that is where a lot of the time is spent, asking people, what is your view about the death penalty? So it's not just necessarily a, a simply you bring in 500 people and you talk to them all at the same time. You don't. There's questionnaires that go out and you try to break them into pools and try to get down the areas of questions you're going to pursue. And But the key question in a case involving death is your view about the death penalty. And that's what takes a long time, and that's uh, usually done in this jurisdiction, uh, individual questions. Going off of, and you had mentioned potential media coverage, and I wanted to touch on that just for a second, because, you know, in this day and age, media can play such a huge role pre-trial in capital cases. Uh, cases like Jody Arias, for example, come to mind. How do you handle potential media coverage surrounding a death penalty case? Does does the strategy there depend on whether the media coverage might be favorable or disfavorable to your client? We've seen kind of both ends of the spectrum lately in terms of media. So kind of how do you approach potential media coverage surrounding these kinds of cases? Well, 
you know, a lot of different ways. If you have the money, and in a capital case, you, you know, you could, you could, you know, make an effort to, uh, you know, try to do a, a community survey. Uh, I have done those in the past in cases that I've had where we still had landlines, and there was, like in the, in the death of a police officer or a couple police officers, there was a community, and the community was overwhelmingly uh, prejudiced because of the publicity and uh, and we did a community survey and presented that to the judge uh, as far as a motion for a change of venue just to deal with the publicity. But anyway, getting back to the question, I guess you have to find out in a questionnaire what media they've been exposed to. In today's day and age, Chris, like you say, uh, it's not just newspapers or radio or television. It's podcast. it's Twitter, it's Facebook. There's all sorts of different areas. We use a service here in Spokane, and I have in my last uh, uh, venue uh, uh, challenges, uh, that gives us an idea of the saturation of all of the media, newspapers, uh, radio, uh, podcasts, uh, anything about the case. And we can get the number of hits, uh, how often it's been exposed to the public consumption of information. And we use that to just see what we're dealing with. But primarily, you have to ask the questions from the individual. It's very you know, hard to believe that there's some people that live in caves and may not know anything about a high publicity case, but there are some people that say they haven't heard or read anything. But So you have to ask the question and then find out. And then, of course, the big question is, what opinions have you formed or what's your belief or feeling? And a lot of people don't know. This is another thing we find out in jury selection, a lot of people don't know about publicity until they come to court. And of course, then they get here and then they get all sorts of uh, comments from other jurors. So that's why courts are going to tell people not to talk about the case or anything. How do you deal with it? You have to deal with it by finding out uh, what the panel thinks and what they believe and if that's going to affect their, their ability to deliberate uh, as a juror in the case. But it also impacts a change of venue. And I have been fairly successful in, in death penalty cases in getting them uh, moved, especially in smaller communities uh, from one place to another. So. so after a verdict comes down, then if you could go into, is there a penalty phase in a death penalty case? And is that tried differently than the guilt phase? Because oh, yeah. I know it's different in different states. So, you know, I know when Illinois had a death penalty, um, we haven't had one for some time, but when they did, there was that option of having a judge decide the sentence versus having a jury decide the sentence in a death penalty case. So is that the same case in Washington? Well, I suppose you could, you know, you could ask that a judge decide the issue, but uh, I've, I've never had that happen. In the state of Washington, it's a bifurcated trial. The first, the factual case, whether a person is actually guilty of aggravated murder takes place first, and that's in front of a jury. And that same jury then determines that here's the case, what the uh, uh, sentence will be. Will it be either life in prison without the possibility of parole or death? And the big issue that's involved in the uh, fact case that's different in the penalty phase is the jury has to make a decision that's completely different. I mean, you know, in, in the fact part of the case, the jury determines, is this a fact? Was the car blue? Was the car red? 
you know, what's going on. In the penalty phase, it's more of a moral decision on the part of a juror. In our state, they have to ask the question and then answer the question, having in mind the crime for which the defendant has been found guilty, are you as a juror convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that there are not sufficient mitigating circumstances to merit leniency? So anything that could merit leniency, uh, mercy is a quality of, of, of leniency too uh, uh, in a case. So it's a completely different case. The facts are certainly important, but you're dealing with a jury that's made a decision if you go to the penalty phase that, you know, your guy's guilty and they're probably not very happy about that. That's why it's always good between the fact phase and the, and, and the penalty phase to get some separation in time, maybe a week if you can, or three or four days, rather than go in when the jury has just returned a verdict of guilty and try the penalty phase. But to answer your question, uh, I, I don't know of any judge that would, although we've considered that, I don't know of any judge in our state because all death penalty cases are reviewed by the Supreme Court automatically uh, that would agree to uh, uh, handle the death penalty case. I know of no case where that's taken place in our state. It's a jury question, and they are separate trials by the same jury. Right. So in terms of the whole process from start to finish, and I know it's going to vary probably from case to case and the severity and the charges and depend on a number of different factors, but how long does a death penalty case or a case where the prosecution is seeking capital punishment usually take from inception, you know, the incident or the alleged incident, to when there's actually a jury verdict? Is it a number of months? Is it a number of years? Or does it just depend? Well, it, it depends. But I would say usually in cases where capital punishment, uh, where the death penalty is at issue, it's usually going to be closer to two years, year and a half. The cases that we just finished last year in Seattle in the Carnation, a murder case where a relative and her boyfriend killed an entire family, three generations of the family. There were two murder cases there. Those were um, you know, a couple years, more than two years afterwards where they were still uh, preparing and hadn't gone to trial yet. So, But on average, I would say it's closer to two years than it is. We have a moratorium in the state of Washington now, but... Since the two cases, just from a practical point of view, that were decided in King County and the costs that are involved in trying a case asking for the death penalty, there has not been uh, since then and since the moratorium any prosecutor uh, that has asked for the death penalty. They still charge aggravated first-degree murder, and the penalty is life in prison without parole uh, if, you know, if you're convicted of that. But... They haven't filed the notice uh, seeking a special proceeding and asking for the death penalty. We have law students listening to this podcast around the country, and I'm curious to, and, and you teach at Gonzaga, I'm curious, what are the traits and the qualities of, of a good law student that transfers over to a successful public interest practice in criminal law? Or a private practice as well, Mark, either of those. Uh, uh, w what are the things that kind of translate? Right. Uh, well, in terms of public interest, whether you're uh, working as a, as a defender or as a prosecutor. Well, I think there's a lot of things if it's in the public sector. And 
Really, I think that there's a big difference. Lawyers who do capital defense, in, in my view, are not doing it because of the money. I don't think it's because of the business reason. I think it's because uh, it's the profession. It's what they believe in. A lot of them don't believe that the death penalty uh, works, and they use their capabilities and their uh, experiences as lawyers to defend that. But, you know, having said that, I think it's something that you want to do. It's like being a judge. I'm not sure there's a lot of people that, you know, are going to do it just for the financial benefit. It's like a calling. I believe that lawyers who get into criminal defense in today's day and age, especially in the federal system, because the federal system in Washington, I, we, we just finished last year, or this year, a capital case. Well, last year, and then uh, in 2016, a capital case in the state of Washington before Eric Holder left as Attorney General of the United States, where death was on the line for almost six months before uh, the United States Attorney in Washington, D.C. decided not to seek death. This was a murder-for-hire case out of North Dakota uh, and involved a, 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 a Spokane. So it's a lot of work, and I think it's more a calling than it is anything. And training is something that is constantly going on. I mean, the CLEs and the and the training in capital uh, cases is, is different. It's, it's, it's more intense. It's more time-consuming. So I think it's something you have to want to do. So would you recommend students really focus their course track through law school more on criminal procedure and then perhaps trial advocacy so that they're learning those type of skills yeah. and then maybe even fostering a, a mentor-type relationship with somebody who's already practicing? I think that's a fantastic suggestion. We're in a smaller community here in Spokane, uh, but to get involved in the practice of criminal law today usually is going to be in a smaller community with a public defender or in the federal courts with the federal defender. In bigger cities like Seattle across the mountains from us, there are law firms that practice criminal law, and you could associate with them. But I do think having courses in law school that deal with criminal procedure, criminal law, being involved with clinics and taking litigation classes and is something that would to help in the future. But if you could also, as a student, whether it's in a clinic or an internship, work with an attorney who has experience in defending capital cases would be a real plus. Because what the committee that evaluates lawyers who have the basic qualifications of just five years of practice and learn it in the law looks at is experience you know, with capital cases. You don't have to be qualified to defend one, but going through the process of uh, preparing questionnaires or investigating in a capital case or researching the law that applies to capital cases and uh, uh, dealing with the experts that are involved in some of these cases is real helpful. And if you have that experience as, a, as an intern or, or an extern, if you can get that with a lawyer uh, who does serious criminal cases. All, all criminal cases are serious, but I'm talking about you know, major uh, uh, cases, murder, uh, uh, cases where experts are involved would be uh, something I think would be helpful, and uh, I'd, I'd recommend that students do that. I mean, say there's lawyers in, in my 10 years on the qualifications uh, committee for the Supreme Court uh, there's a lot of lawyers. I mean, just because you apply doesn't mean you're going to get approved. 
I think in our state, I mean, this is this is what I'm saying just off the top of my head. I think we have about 15 attorneys in in the state of Washington that are qualified for appellate practice. So if you're going to be an appellate lawyer, that's something that's more writing. Of course, it, it involves knowledge of the substantive law when you're talking about capital cases. But uh, there's there's 15 lawyers that are involved for direct appeals uh, in capital cases. And I think there's about another 20 on personal restraint petitions. And as far as capital cases, there's in the in our entire state, I think there's about 50 lawyers that are on the list. That's Seattle. That's every place in the state. The more exposure you can get to try cases, the better you are as a student. Awesome. Hey, Mark, I want to thank you again for joining us today. You know, the death penalty, capital punishment, and everything that goes into trying one of those cases is something uh, that students really are interested in, especially if they're pursuing a career in criminal law, either in the private or public sector. So, hey, thanks again so much for being here. Uh, That's it for us here today at the Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Chris Morgan. And I'm Sandy Gallant. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.